Hello and welcome to the Access Podcast. We are so happy to have you with us and thank you again for tuning in. Right now, we are going to be diving into Colossians 1 on today's episode of The Bible in Context. Well, hey everyone, welcome to The Bible in Context. Uh, It's Pastor Jake and today we're going to be going through Colossians 1. So uh, wherever you're listening from, if you're able to, uh, grab a Bible, grab a notepad. If you're in the car, just listen, keep your hands on the wheel, pay attention. But hey, uh, I'm really excited about this uh, this podcast and these podcasts in particular. I think it's important um, just in, in light of the generation that we live in, understanding the Bible is an ever-increasing need for our generation. You know, Alec and Bethany are here with me today, and, and we often talk about how important it is that we understand the Bible. We ask good questions, then we seek it out for ourselves. And that's what really this this uh, series of podcasts is about, is diving into uh, certain books of the Bible, understanding their context. And we're just hoping to uh, take, a, take a nice little trip down Colossians this is probably going to be about a 10 to 12 part series, depending on how quickly we get through things. And so we hope that it blesses you. It deepens your uh, love for Christ and your understanding of God as we dive into Colossians 1. You guys ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, Colossians 1. So kind of the setup that I want to kind of go into today, guys, is really setting the context for Colossians. What was happening? Why did Paul write it? Where did he write it from? And what were some of the questions that the church was asking that Paul was addressing? What were some of the problems that the church was facing that Paul was addressing? Because if, so Colossians is a letter, so Paul was in prison in Rome, most likely, and he wrote a letter to the church in a city called Colossae. And so it's not, so that's what you got to understand about the New Testament is most of the books in the New Testament were letters written to certain churches. And so Paul's writing this letter to the church in Colossae, which is a city in Rome, and it was a small city. And uh, some things we got to know about the city uh, are that Paul, or the church in that city, is that Paul actually did not start the church in Colossae. So he didn't start this church. He'd actually never visited the city of Colossae. But the gospel had gone out so powerfully that certain cities were were being saved by the message of the gospel of Christ, even though Paul himself or the other apostles weren't visiting those cities. So this was very good news for Paul. This was this was this was exciting news for Paul because as being in prison, there was a, there was a temptation to be you could say discouraged because the gospel wasn't advancing. And then he hears a message that there are cities that are being flipped upside down through the message of the gospel. And this just makes Paul so excited. But it also makes Paul very eager to write to these churches in order to make sure that they have sound doctrine. In order to make sure that they understand the truth of Christ and that, uh, you could say, deceptions or heresies or false teachings of Christ don't get infused inside the pure message of the gospel that Paul was preaching in the other churches. And so the church in Colossae was started by a guy named Epaphras. So that's E-P-A-P-H-R-A-S, Epaphras. And uh, he, he started this church by just preaching what he had been taught, by teaching what he had been taught, by, by, by spreading the message of Christ to the city uh, that that he was in. He was just where he was. 
And so, like I said earlier, Paul was in prison. We read about that, and if you go to Colossians 4.18, it mentions how Paul was in prison while writing this letter. And the other thing about this church in Colossae is is it was actually the smallest and least, quote-unquote, important church Paul ever wrote to. So it was a small church. It wasn't wasn't an economic hub. It wasn't a, a, a metropolitan city in the first century Roman Empire. It was a pretty insignificant church, but Paul found it necessary to write to them nonetheless. And as we start reading into Colossians 1, that's just kind of the backdrop, is understanding Paul was in prison, understanding he never visited this church, and understanding now, here's the deal, what they were struggling with. What was the church struggling with that Paul felt the need to write to them? And that's what we're going to get into as we dive into Colossians 1. Are you guys ready? Very ready. So as as we dive into Colossians 1... Uh, we talk about just different ways to approach the Bible. Kind of how we want to approach it today is, as we're reading Scripture, how does the Scripture fit in to the context of the letter? So we don't just want to read the Scriptures and apply them to our lives, copy-paste, but we want to have a deeper understanding, a deeper searching out of the Scriptures in order to allow them to teach us what God intended them to teach the church that they that it was originally sent to. And so how does this uh, passage of Scripture fit into the context of the letter? And then how does a verse fit in to the verse before and the verse after? You know, in American Christianity, we're like a pick-and-choose like culture, where it's like we would pick a verse, we apply it, and we don't think about the verse before and after. We just want to apply it the way that, you know, the, to, the way that, uh, to the, the way that we want to apply it. And then how does this verse fit into the chapter? Is there, what, what's it trying to accomplish within the chapter? It's kind of like reading a book. You can't just pick up a book, start reading in the middle of the book, and then say, well, I totally understand this book. It's like, well, you're, you haven't read, the, you haven't read the, the introduction. You haven't read uh, the, the points leading up to that chapter that you're in, and you haven't read the end of the book. So how are you supposed to understand it? So understanding the chapter, and then understanding how does that fit into the entire book or the letter that's being written, and then how does that fit into the entire biblical narrative? That's kind of the progression that we want to continue to teach and continue to help inform anyone listening is that Scripture is meant to be interpreted through context, through the chapter, through the book, and then through the entire biblical narrative. It's not just a, it's not just a lonely verse that we get to apply. It's a part of a larger biblical narrative that God's written through Genesis to Revelation. Can't cherry pick them. No cherry picking. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite uh, cherry-picked verse growing up? Like one that maybe you grew up with always being cherry-picked? I think I think the one that me and you have talked about the most is probably like when the two or more are gathered together, there I am. I think that one's talked about is like, oh yeah, God is here with us. But when really in the biblical, the biblical context, it was used for rebuking people, which not a lot of people what do you, really what do you, know. What does rebuking mean? That's kind of a It's like when, when someone is doing something wrong and, and they're not seeing like that they're doing it and then you confront them and then if that doesn't work then you get another person involved that doesn't work you bring in like the church leaders and then if that doesn't work eventually they just get um, removed from the community but rebuking in a sense is just saying hey you're doing this wrong and not in a sense of like condemning but trying to help them so you're saying like we're two or more gathered that's like when we get in a church service and we're like hey guys like god's here because two of us are gathered it's like absolutely well god's not wait is god not there when you're I was so confused of that growing up because it was always used, oh, like we're two or more are gathered. Then I'm like, hey, 
are all my prayers by myself invalid then because <laughs> I'm only by myself? Yeah. What's your favorite? Do you have one? He stole mine. That's yours? That was mine. Because <laughs> wow. that was brought up so much in the other church that I was in and in my family. It was just like, Cherry picking. more gathered. And I, then when we were talking to you, I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense now. I think my favorite, my not my favorite one, but the cherry picker that I always used growing up that I realized as I started reading the Bible was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mm. It's kind of like, I can accomplish whatever I want to accomplish in my life because Christ wants me to accomplish it. <laughs> I always used it in sports, like that was my thing. And so as I read it, you know, the verse before talks about in wealth and poverty, I can do all things through Christ, meaning whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm being abused or suffering or I'm affluent and comfortable, I can do whatever's in front of me. Christ has the power to give me the strength to do whatever's in front of me. And which is just way different than I Right. can do all things mm-hmm. through Christ who gives me strength. Yeah. Anyway, let's keep <laughs> moving on here. Don't cherry pick. <laughs> That's rule number one, I guess. So as we look through the uh, Colossians, kind of the, the lens that I would like us to view uh, view the book through is, as we look through the book, we'll, we'll get into it later, but it's the whole book is about the supremacy of Christ and the new creation that Christ has instituted. So the supremacy of Christ in the new creation. So let's get into it. I'm going to read the entire thing, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. So Colossians 1, I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard uh, Bible, or the NASB, the N-A-S-B. And here, here we go. We're going to be reading 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have all uh, have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, there's that guy, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's Colossians 1, 1 through 14, and that's what we're going to be diving into today. And so as we read that, when I when I had initially read that and I read that, there there's some good stuff in there, but a lot of it's kind of introductory to me, right? And we read that and we're like, okay, that's kind of the introductory. There's not much there. But as we read and as, we, as we'll study today, it's actually extremely profound. And, 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 and it challenges us and it challenges me to a deeper devotion to Christ as I study these 14 verses. So let's break it down verse by verse 
And I'm going to go through one and two, and then I'll, we're going to make some comments. We're going to pause after verse two. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So anything stick out to you guys there before I jump into my, to my little notes here? Well, I think for me, he emphasized like grace to you and peace. I, I'm reading from the Amplified, so it continues an in inner calm and spiritual well-being from God our Father and making an emphasis that the peace is coming from God, not mm-hmm. from everything being peachy keen or anything like that, but it's like no supernatural peace onto you, which I think is kind of cool. Hmm. So as we, as we get in here, I, I want to point out, it says to the saints, which saints are right? Christians, they're followers of Christ. They're people of the way. It's uh, followers of Christ to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. And I think there's a distinction there because most times when you read in other letters, Paul mostly just says brethren, my brethren, my brethren, right? My brethren. But now he's saying faithful brethren, which I think the reason he's making a distinction is because of the challenges that that culture was facing, which there were two different you could say temptations, worldviews, ideologies that were drawing Christians out of their devotion to Christ and in influencing their uh, worldview to unbiblical, unchristlike worldviews. So, so the faithful brethren are, are referring to the people who have not bowed their knee to false religions, to false ideologies, to false ideas, and who have been faithful to the teachings of the gospel. Where there's other brethren who have said, you know what, this Christian thing is like, uh, it's all right, but I also think that the Gnostics are right. Or Gnosticism, which is like a worship of angels, which is a, a D, uh, it's a lowering of Christ, saying Christ was like an angel. He wasn't God. So it's, it's Gnosticism is, is really mysticism, which is spiritual experiences and kind of enlightenment type of mentality. And so it's Christians who have said, you know what, like I still believe in Christ, but I, you know, I think they have, they, I think the Gnostics have a point. The mystics have a point, you know, so the faithful brethren, and this is to the people who have not strayed away, the people who have not bowed their knee to culture. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's basically just like you have like the Christians who have been faithful and then you have like compromised Christianity. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't want to say that they're unsaved, but yeah. the Christians who are dabbling in other ideologies that okay. are inconsistent with, with, with the teachings that Paul was bringing about the gospel. And so you have the mystics, but then you also have the strict Juda, uh, Judaism, which was focused on uh, food laws, feast days, dress codes, all the religious codes of first century Judaism, which were focused on outward holiness. There was also a temptation to go to that camp to say, if you're really, if you're really a follower of Christ, Christ was a Jew. And so you're going to follow food laws. You're going to follow dress codes. You're going to follow the feast days. But Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. He set us free from the law so that we can be free, right? Free from proving our holiness through outward religious duties. We prove our holiness through our outward good works before God, but not necessarily through man-made religious codes and standards. So these are the kind of the temptations that that are pulling on the church. And it really makes me ask the question for us, what are the temptations that are pulling on us that Paul might have, you know, that God is speaking to us about of what's tempting us 
to stray away from pure devotion to Christ? Is there is there a is there a Gnostic mysticism or a Gnostic worldview that's you know that would be pulling us more towards a you get a hyper spiritual view of our Christianity? And is there also a strict religious temptation for us that's pulling on us? Is there? And I would say there is, and we're not here to define that maybe today. Maybe that'll be in a Tough Conversations uh, podcast. But just to say, while Paul was extremely um, intentional about speaking to the faithful brethren who have not bowed the knee to the false teachings of its time. And so as we keep moving, it says, faithful brethren, grace and peace to you. Last I'll say here is like, (laughs) I feel like grace and peace are such Christian words that sometimes we we don't understand their true impact so imagine paul in prison and he's saying grace and peace to you he's in prison he wishes he could go and visit them but he's in prison so all he has to offer them is praying that god's grace and his peace would find them and it's this grace you know titus 2 says the grace of god it says teaches us to say no to ungodliness so he's giving them this grace of God. He's praying that they would receive the grace and then also peace, that they could have the peace of Christ, which transcends on, uh, you know, goes beyond our understanding. It's not just a grace and peace as a religion. It's an actual working of God that he's praying for them. And it's not a religious duty. It's a very real, genuine, authentic prayer and hope for uh, the church. And so... We'll find in the next teaching that Paul's uh, plan to combat false teaching is to focus on the real Jesus. So there are all these, there's these false teachings. His, his plan is to say, I'm going to give you the real Jesus. All counterfeit teachings won't be able to hold up to the real Jesus. So his plan is not to go and argue. His plan is to say, here's Christ. He's sufficient. He is the real deal. And he is not counterfeit. So give people the real thing and they will f- sniff out the false thing. So let's move on to verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Praying always for you. We give thanks to God. Once again, if we read this through our American lens, Western culture lens, we just, you know, we bring thanks to you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always. <laughs> you know, we're like, it's like, of course, how many, like, when's the last time you, yeah, like, when's the last time, I'm going to put you on blast here. When's the last time you told someone you're going to pray for them and you actually didn't pray for them? Mine was probably like last week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe you're better than me. (laughs) No, yeah. Well, it's like you say you pray for them, then you like forget for a couple days. You're like, oh, shoot. And then sometimes you just like, oh, dear God, just like help me with the situation. (laughs) And then you move on so that like you're not lying. I've caught myself in that because like, oh, I told him I was going to pray for him. And then I was like, well, I forgot been a couple days i'm gonna send up a quick prayer uh god please help them amen yeah right before your meal thank you for the spoon oh by the way also yeah yeah, and that too yes um check that off the list god keep my conscience clear i prayed for them (laughs) (laughs) and this is where as we go into a verse by verse we don't skip over this right we don't skip over the fact that paul was actually fighting for this church in prayer he says i'm praying for you always and I believe that Paul was a man of integrity and honesty and a man of prayer, of deep conviction. And so he wouldn't say, I'm praying for you like we do in America, if he actually wasn't praying for them. And I just think this is 
a pretty incredible statement that's pretty simple. Um, and I think it just highlights the importance of intercession, that Paul's in, in prison, yet he's praying for another church. He's praying for another people group. He's praying for his brothers and sisters who are in a better condition than he is, and yet he's still praying for them, praying that they would that they would find Christ, that they would hold true uh, to the message of the gospel. And I find it very helpful in situations where I can pity myself to see Paul's consistency and selflessness to care about other people more he cares about, more than he cares about himself. Anything to add, Bethany? No, it's just trying to wrap your head around like the intensity of like we're praying always for you. And I'm definitely convicted by that. But yeah. Yeah. And I just think it's the the thing that I like to think about here is, you know, you've ever had like you heard of like the praying grandma, right? Every every Christian has like a praying grandma, it seems like. Um and really what I find out as you get older, you learn that you can only do so much and that actually it's more effective to pray than it is to act. Now, prayer always needs to lead to action, but there's a certain point in your life where you realize that my actions can only go so far. And you realize that if my actions aren't fueled by prayer, then my actions are insufficient. But if my actions are fueled by a lifestyle of prayer, then even though my actions may be less frequent, my actions will be more efficient because they're actually saturated with grace. They're saturated with God's perspective. They're saturated with not a need to change, but a realization that God is the one who changes people, not us. And that's the power of a praying grandma is that she realizes she can't control her grandkids. She can't control what's happening in culture because oftentimes they don't understand what's happening on the smartphones and on the social media, but all they, but they can see the pain that we're in, the depression that we're in, the, you know, the things that, that plague our generation, and yet they pray that Christ would meet us, and they don't need to understand the culture in order to have spiritual influence on their grandkids. That's good. And so here, that's, I think, what Paul's in, right? He's in prison. He can't do anything, but he still realizes that the power of prayer and the power of interceding for uh, this church. And so here we move on. Um, to the next verse, and this is why Paul was thankful. So he's giving thanks, giving thanks to God, praying for you always. Why is he thankful? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, for of which you previously heard in the word of truth, which has come to you, just as in all the world, as also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So basically he's saying, like, I'm giving thanks and praying for you because the gospel has reached you. Because, and this is a, an interesting point where Paul isn't actually praying for everyone. He's praying for Christians. He, because he understands something. We can pray for unbelievers and we should pray for unbelievers. But the way that unbelievers are going to come to Christ is if Christians are shining bright, standing for truth and won't back down. So Paul understood that his call wasn't actually to pray for unbelievers, but for believers. Because if believers got a hold of the gospel and conviction and started to know Christ, have a strong personal revelatory uh, relationship with Christ, then the unbelievers would have a culture, a church, a family to actually belong to. And so... It's actually an evangelism strategy 
which is to pray for the Christians to be strong and committed and convicted and have conviction so that unbelievers can come and have a family belong to. But if you're only ever praying for unbelievers and you don't pray for the Christians, then the unbelievers come in and you're all weak and then you just have a mess. That's why Paul, he's saying a thank, but he's also saying like, I thank you that the gospel has reached you. Now I didn't even go to you. You know what I mean? And you guys, if you guys have any questions or any comments, just, just butt in and interrupt me. Um, I just think it's, it's, it's so powerful to consider that Paul's thankfulness for the, the work of the gospel in a different city that he's never visited. And it, it just shows how committed he was to God's work, to the expanding and growing of the kingdom and how his eyes were so off of this world and so on the new kingdom that Christ was building in every city for him in every city in Rome in the, in the, in the, in the world that he knew. Any comments or questions? No, like you said, I think it's just incredible that his focus was so much more on like growing the family, like receiving the new brethren, like finding co-laborers rather than, you know, like, like literally worldly possessions. I remember when um, Rick Renner was in here and he was talking about like the prisons that Paul was probably yeah. in and Peter and how they're like literally sitting in like sewage and they're hanging from the walls and change. And he's literally like not even concerned about himself. He's just so happy that the gospel has found other people and he wasn't even the one to go and evangelize to them. It's incredible. And this is the power of, I'll just make a note of understanding the context because it actually has a more profound effect on us because we realize that in America, our lives aren't actually as hard as what we've, what we may seem they are, even though life can be difficult. Obviously life is tragic. It's difficult but it was difficult for them too. And you read it and you understand their difficulty. It brings hope, conviction, and a path to live a life of triumphant hope and joy in the midst of anything we go through. And this is just the power of the gospel. So I want to make a side note here. Um, just a quick uh, side note. In verse 6, it says, Which has come to you, the, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. So all the world isn't actually all the world because <laughs> even today there are over 2 billion people who have not heard the gospel, which is tragic. 2 billion people who have never heard of the message that Christ has come to make all things new, to forgive sin, to make us a new person, give us eternal hope. So this is a, a you could say hyperbole that is used to describe the gospel spreading over the Roman empire. So the Roman empire was the dominant force in that, in the first century and they were setting up shop, <laughs> imperializing, in a sense, the entire known world. So they're setting up, taking over a city. If the city wouldn't submit, they would come, and they would send soldiers, and they would pillage the city, take it over. They would go into a city. Most people would just say, we surrender. We'll be a Roman city. Just don't kill us. And so he's saying the gospel is spreading all over the Roman Empire, not necessarily the entire world, because... We had, you know, the gospel hadn't traveled to the North America. The gospel hadn't traveled to um, parts of Africa yet. And so that's just kind of a, a note just to help us understand the words in the scriptures. So, so it says, It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. It says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. 
And here we have at that man Epaphras who visited Paul in prison. And then Paul wrote the letter to Colossae, and Paul gave it to Epaphras to bring it back to read it to the people in Colossae. So here we have the beauty that like we were talking about earlier, that we are all participants in the spreading of God's kingdom. Let me ask you, have you like have you ever heard of Epaphras before this? I actually have. Okay. Well, I'm a poor okay. example. Okay. I have not. It's like Epaphras. Who the who in the world is Epaphras? And yet he is responsible for starting the church in Colossae, which is one of the books of the Bible. Like Epaphras, who most people have never heard of, was a participant in the establishment of the God's kingdom in a city in the first century. And we are reading about his work today. And there, here's the beauty, is that we're all participants. Not everyone's able to be Paul and be a missionary. Not everyone's able to be Peter and be a missionary. Not everyone's able to be, you know, the, the, the face of a global movement. But we all are participants in the kingdom to establish a committed family that's pursuing Christ in the city, in the location that we're located in. And it's just a beautiful truth. You know, the, the devil, the Satan likes to try to convince us that we're insignificant, that we actually can't make a difference, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. And as we grow in our relationship and understanding of God's Word, you'll constantly see names that you've never heard of before that were part of God's redemptive plan to reach the world and get us to the point where we are today, where we have the Scriptures, we have the Spirit, we have Christ, and we are part of God's growing kingdom. So let's move on to verse 8. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So how do you guys, like, what's your guys' take on the importance of Christians, like, loving each other? Well, I think there's a slight importance <laughs> there, don't you think, Alec? Yeah, like just just it's, a little bit. It's probably pretty important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't, didn't Jesus say something about that? Like, I mean, Pastor Joanne was talking about this weekend, you can sum the whole Bible up in a nutshell, love God, love people. Yeah. So I think it's pretty important. Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> so how do you, do you think, here, here's my, my thought on this. He also informed us of your love in the spirit. I think at times Christians get so focused on loving the world, which we need to love people, right? We, it says to love your enemy. But oftentimes it's easier to love strangers than it is to love your family. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think here he's, he's giving thanks for them because uh, Epaphras came back and reported about how the church was behaving in Colossae. And he's saying, we love one another. We sacrifice one another. We love each other. He's informed of your love in the spirit. That yes, they're loving the world and they're loving their enemies, but there's a there's a there's a family love for one another that Paul is proud of. And I I think we need to strive in our church, in our group, in our community, not that we don't love each other, but consider how we can grow in our love for one another, our sacrificing, our our encouragement, our eliminating gossip, eliminating the things that are that are cutting us off at the knees to love each other and truly sacrifice for the family that we have at Res Life Church. And that is what you could say made Paul proud 
And I believe that's what makes Christ proud is when the church loves each other, but they don't keep it to each other. They also love their enemies and love the world. But if you don't have your house together first, how are you supposed to invite anyone into mm-hmm. it? You know what I mean? It's like, if we don't love each other, why would anyone want to be a part of our church family? Like, you know, that's when you know, we're never going to be perfect, but I think that's just something we need to strive for. Any, any verses that kind of like stick out to you, come off the top of your head when you think of, you know, just informed of your love in the spirit? Well, I just think of, you know, when Jesus was giving the command of like, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, not only yourself, but I think of your, your family also, because it's so often that, okay, I'm going to go out and serve. I'm not going to help out at home because like serving mm. other people is more important than like serving my family. So it's definitely convicted of that, of holding that same love if not more for those that are immediately around us and making Mm. sure, like you said, that our, you know, that our homes are taken care of, that our first ministries are taken care of. Yeah. What do you think, Alex? So I have a question. I know you kind of, you probably talked about it, but when it says in the spirit, can you talk about that a little bit more? Like what specifically does that mean? Yeah, that's capital S. It means that it's in the spirit, meaning that their love is motivated by the Holy Spirit kind of how I maybe would think about that would be going maybe to Galatians 5 where you have the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I might have forgot one, but and so their love is not marked by action. Their love is marked by motive. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you can do something nice for someone, but it doesn't mean you love them. It means Mm -hmm. you want to feel better about yourself. And so your love is actually it's your love for yourself because you want to make yourself look better. So your love is actually selfish. Yeah. I think love in the spirit is a, is a, it's a selfless overflow to serve. First Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not self-seeking. Does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Um, keeps no record of wrong. <laughs> I think it's that kind of love. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a love that's not based by just simply words but by a spiritual motivation that comes from Christ. It's kind of like uh, worshipers worship in spirit and truth, you know, gotcha. where it's not like just raising your hands, but it's a truly that Christ is actually the only one that allows you to worship. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a love that Christ in his spirit bubbles up on the inside, and it, it leads us to action of serving. So let's keep, man, we're already at like 34 minutes. We're going to keep this rolling. Any, any other questions before we move on? No, I'm good. So as we look at here, this is why Paul's so thankful in verse three. Um, just can you imagine like Paul who's risked his life, traveled the known Roman Empire, being chased down. Now he's in prison. His life mission is to have the message of Jesus spread. Um, the, G, he, G, he met Jesus face to face. Now he wants to reach every person possible for the, the advancement of God's uh, kingdom and for Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection. And now he's in chains. He's in prison you can imagine the temptation to be in, to just be discouraged because he's in prison and now he can't accomplish his mission to reach the world for Christ and to make disciples of all nations. And he hears of another faithful servant who's preached the gospel and started the church in his city. Not only do they receive it, but it grips their heart and life and they have changed their priorities and their devotion. He's not just thankful that they are behaving, but thankful that the Holy Spirit is working in them. Beyond himself, he's thankful that the message of the gospel is making all things new in the instance of the city of Colossae. So I just rewind, rewind that verses three through eight. He's thankful because of 
all the things th- for, um, from verse 4 to verse 8. He's thankful because Christ's work has changed the people in Colossae. So here we are, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his his beloved son in whom we have the redemption of sin or the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here we are. He's giving thanks again. He's not, he's praying again and he's asking that we would be filled in verse nine with the knowledge of his will, filled with the knowledge of his will. So as we, as we think about being filled with the knowledge of his will, what's your guys' take on that type of idea being filled with the knowledge of his will. I think he's just praying. Yeah. Let's see. He's talking about like continually having that relationship with God and continually being filled with the knowledge of what God wants for them instead of like, you know, like you're talking about how they have the temptation, the temptation to fall away. He's just continually asking that they've, they've had the good work started and he wants them to continue it and not fall away. Hmm. So how does let's, let's practice something here. How does it relate to the context? Because remember that one of our in, in one of our one of our principles is we want to go to the context because a verse can sometimes be confusing and we try to make sense of it, but when we bring it back to the context, it will make more sense. So let's bring it back to the context of you have the Gnostics, the Gnosticism, the mysticism, which is saying Christ is more like an angel and Christ is not that important. And then you have the Judaisms, which are strict religious laws. So for this reason ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why do you think he said that in light of the context? So that they would have a clear insight on God's purposes and like what they're actually supposed to be doing. I guess a more focused view line of like having knowledge on spiritual things. That way when some someone comes along and says, mm. hey, Jesus is an angel, they can be, no, I'm like, I'm filled with the knowledge of God, which says that Jesus was not an angel. Jesus is the son of God. Yeah. And having a clear viewpoint with that. Yeah, and even I'm looking at verse 10, it says, so that you will walk in the matter, you, are, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And I'm just thinking like, rather than focusing on like the the traditional Judaism, like religious, like all the yeah. duties, all the tasks, all the fasting, all the you know, like the eating habits, like he's talking about being worthy to the Lord and not like worrying about the respect of men. It's hmm. kind of like bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God instead of increasing in the knowledge of man and like the religious duties. Like he's freeing us from being informed versus um, being in relationship with God. I love what you're saying. If I can if I can put words to what you're saying, kind of combine it, it's to combat false teaching of their time. It's not to know about the false teaching. It's to know the truth. Absolutely. So he's praying like, know the truth. I'm praying that you would know Christ, him fully, know his will, have spiritual wisdom and understanding so that when these false teachings come, 
when these pressures and ideologies in our time, I might be postmodernism, which Mm -hmm. says, well, your truth is different than my truth. And well, you know, I just kind of think that Muslims and Christians and, and, and Hindus are kind of all serving the same God. It's like, wait a minute. If you don't know the truth, then mm-hmm. you might be swept away by postmodernism, yeah. which says there's no such thing as truth, and it's all subjective some, to somebody's experience, and you don't know someone else's experience, so their truth is different than your truth. And that's where we see you need to know the yeah. truth of God's word and God's redemptive plan over that's the good. entire Bible so that when it comes about, we can say, uh, that that mm-hmm. doesn't smell right. Yeah. You know, like I, it's like the, the, the idea of when they're training someone to, to, to uh, identify counterfeit hundred dollar bills, they don't show them the counter. They just show. They just have them feel over and over and over again the real bills. So as they're going through bills, they they know what a real hundred dollar bill feels like. As soon as a fake one comes, it's like, yeah, that's a fake. They don't even have to look at it. They don't have to. They don't even have to observe it under a microscope. They don't have to bring it to an authentication office. Just by feeling it, they know it's counterfeit because they've felt the real thing so much. And sometimes we have a very vague understanding of God. We have a very elementary and immature understanding of God because we're bombarded with Christianity and faith and spirituality all the time because of Instagram and YouTube. And we don't have a true personal commitment to Christ. It can often lead us to being deceived by cultural ideologies and worldviews such as postmodernism Um and so that's just kind of how it applies, I think, to our time today. That was a little rant for you guys. Was super was good. good. <laughs> that was a good rant, yeah. I don't know if I'd call it a rant. Monologue. We'll call it a monologue. That's a rabbit trail. Awesome. Rabbit trail. Kind of. All right, let's keep moving. <laughs> Strengthen with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness, patience, and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So here we are. God's calling us to bear good fruit, to increase in the knowledge of God, uh, to be strengthened according to his glorious might. And here we talk about in verse 12, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. What does that mean? Share in the inheritance of the saints? What in the world? That is crazy lingo. <laughs> How, how how does that fit into here? Any thoughts? No? Okay. Can I phone a friend? Phone a friend? Who you can <laughs> phone? I would like to phone Pastor Jake. <laughs> <laughs> uh simply put, I don't have much time to go into it in this in this episode, but I really what it's coming down to is just really simple. Who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints is that the inheritance of the saints is the new creation. It's this idea that God, it's not just heaven, it's actually that God is going to recreate earth. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And so we are going to share in that inheritance and part of life right now is actually bringing about new creation in our world. So we're sharing in making our lives new in turning away from evil and turning to God and good. We are sharing. He's qualified us to share in that inheritance. Not that we earn it, but it is an inheritance. And as Christ has given us the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, who has made us new, and now we get to make our worlds new through the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us. We don't earn it. We don't, we don't work for it. But it is an inheritance which is given to us by God because he has found us and saved us by the power 
the gospel and the power of Christ. For wow. he's rescued us. Mic drop right there. <laughs> For he's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we were tempted. So here's, this is what I'll make a note about that. I think that ties into, uh, this ties into just the cultural pressure of the two camps that were tempting this church. But what I'll say about this is that we are still tempted by Satan today, right? Everyone's still tempted. But we are not under the power of Satan. So we are transferred from a kingdom of darkness to where we were slaves to sin, slaves to the flesh, slaves to ourselves, slaves to every craving that came our way, whatever that is for, for each of us individually. And we could not get out of it because we were a slave to sin. But now it says we are transferred from that domain, that kingdom of darkness. And God has rescued us through Christ and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son to where now we are a new creation where old things have passed away, all things have made new, and Christ is Christ's ever-expanding kingdom, uh, his ever-expanding love and plan for the earth is growing, and we are a part of that kingdom. We are a part of that plan. We are a part of the redemptive solution for humanity, and we're no longer uh, under Satan's thumb, but in fact, we are under the loving care of a loving uh, ruler in Jesus. If you remember the whole book of Colossae is the supremacy of Christ and the new creation. It's the supremacy of Christ and the new creation. So here we see transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It sets it up as a kingdom where Christ is the ruler and that his supremacy reigns over all. And we are part of that plan in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is the releasing of our payment or the debt that we owed. Christ has done the work so that we could share in the inheritance, so that we could be a part of this new creation that God is instituting every day through his love, his spirit, and his ever-living and powerful word that we got to read through today. So that's all the time that we have for today. Do you guys have any last comments as we wrap up Colossians 1, 1 through 14? I'm good. I'm excited to hear more. Yes, this is fun. That was, what, yeah, 45 we're only, minutes? We're, yeah, we're only uh, 14 verses in. So. 14 verses in. This is yeah. going to be fun. That's why we might have like 12 episodes. But it's <laughs> worth it as we dive into into the, just the Bible, understanding its contexts, and applying it to our lives in a practical way. So thanks for listening to The Bible in Context, Colossians 1, Episode 1. We'll see you next time on the Excess Podcast. <laughs>